The Birth Circle podcast features experts in all the nuanced areas of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum with the aim of helping women make the choices that will keep them safe, healthy, and empowered. We respect all birth choices and believe in supporting informed consent and evidence-based practices. Nothing said on this podcast should be taken as medical advice. You should always seek the advice of a competent professional for your care. Welcome to the Birth Circle podcast. This is Sarah with Birth Circle, and today I'm joined with Jennifer Krebs. And Jennifer is a um, hospital CNM, certified nurse midwife here in Utah. And so (laughs) my favorite question to ask you crazies, Mm -hmm. how many hours of sleep did you get last night? (laughs) Actually, last night was really good. I told you when we scheduled this that I was going to be on call the day before. So like I may be really tired and, (laughs) you know, somewhere in between that and hopped up on a lot of coffee to try to be here. (laughs) But actually tonight was, last night was like kind of mellow. I feel like I got like six hours of sleep. How do you do that? How do you go on? Because how long are your call schedules? So my call shifts usually are about 24 hours. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So if you're Mm -hmm. delivering babies straight for 24 hours, then you come home. How do you like? Well, so this year is like magical for me because this year all of my children are in school full time. Oh, you hit the magic I know, right? Like last year was kind of a tease because kindergarten is only half day. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, it's like you drop your child off at school and then you get to sleep for two hours and then you have to go back back and get them, you know? So it's, um, it's a little bit of a tease. So no, so I, right now, you know, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. Say no more. Those first couple of days mm-hmm. after those kids went, you know, to school, the kindergartner, first grade. But it's it, like, I don't know what to do with myself. Like, I have thoughts in my head. <laughs> I can almost finish a thought in my head. But if you were to talk to me when, you know, my last baby was like eight months old and was like still not sleeping through the night. Yeah. And I was, you know, uh, had my little, you know, pump that I brought with me to the hospital. And then I'd get home, you know, and get a, like an hour of sleep. Oh and then my, my baby goodness. would wake up and I'd go and nurse and then, you know, I'd go back to sleep and then 30 minutes later the hospital would call and then I'd go back in, you know, that, uh, I probably consumed, I consumed a lot of caffeine during that time. Your baby, that's probably why your baby didn't sleep. Honestly. Yeah, well, it might have been. <laughs> I mean, I just, I have so much admiration and respect for midwives because of the sacrifices you make for, for your job. I mean, we are known as tired people, tired people. Yeah. My, my friend says I was just born tired. So midwifery is a normal it's and the thing for me. Thing. Now me and my sleep, we're, we're, we're serious. Yeah. We have a serious relationship. Um, so how did you get into midwifery? Because nobody mm. would want to choose this in their right mind, right? <laughs> well, the, you know, you don't make it for very long as a midwife unless it's um, something that you feel very passionate about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I recently um, noticed that, so I've delivered, oh, yeah, I'm somewhere I haven't looked recently, I keep track Um I've, I've attended over a thousand births. So I'm up in the like thousand twenties or something. Mm-hmm. And last night I got to be with two women, uh, two first time moms while, while they birthed. And I realized, um, how exciting it was still for me, you know, after a thousand babies. And I thought, I, that's how, you know, that's how, you know, that yeah. you've done the thing that you were meant to do. Um, because you're exhausted and, you know, my house is probably not as clean as other people's, um, but, but, uh, but it's still that exciting to me every time. Um, so initially, and I was, uh, talking about this outside, um, initially I actually studied anthropology. So I have a degree in, um, development or economic anthropology. Um, and I kind of 
school hopped. I, I went to any university that would give me credits for traveling. Um, and I spent... Sounds like a great plan. <laughs> right? It was, it was amazing. It also like wasn't super smart. I would be devastated if my children did this to me. <laughs> oh, okay. Because I like left by myself at age 21 for India, like rural India. Well, this is back when, I mean, we're not that old, but we're old enough to not have cell phones back when we were Yeah, no, there were no cell phones. And in fact, I didn't have internet service a lot of the time. And, you know, at one point I I got on a bus, I was, I was traveling with a a local micro lending program, a very grassroots Mm -hmm. program up into like the nomadic regions of the, the Northern Himalayas of India. And I remember calling my mom and saying, I'm not going to have a phone or the internet for the next week. If you don't hear from me by Sunday, maybe maybe contact the embassy you're right you hope your children my children they can never do this to me anyway so I worked I've I've always been very passionate about um, uh, women's issues and working with women and what I mostly studied were um, women's issues in poverty um, and worked with, uh, I spent some time with the Tibetan Women's Association working with and collecting oral life histories of Tibetan refugees wow. um, who are ex-political prisoners from, um, from China, um, working in, you know, very, very poor rural communities. Um, you know, I look back on it now and I feel like so naive, like, yeah. you know, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but that's, you know, I, I knew that I would always feel very passionate about that. Um, but I did feel rather helpless. Mm-hmm. I felt like I didn't have a useful skill, you know, data collection didn't feel um, useful in any way to the women that I was working with. Um, and, and it also, you know, my degree, while it was super interesting and while I, you know, it made for really great conversation, um, you know, it didn't qualify me to do much, uh, for a living uh, yeah. at home. Um, you know, we, we joked, you know, it, I, was qualified to wait tables with all the history English majors. Yeah, you know after that. <laughs> oh, um, so I wanted a useful skill, and I wanted um, to work with women. And a lot of times in these very very rural communities, then you, when you're working with micro lending programs, you the first person that you make contact with are the traditional midwives mm. um, that already have an established relationship with the community. Um, and I I loved that. Um, I loved that midwives uh, were a trusted person. Yeah, in I was going to say that's probably a lot different than our mm-hmm. culture. And the midwives are kind of the matriarchs. They they mm-hmm. they hold the community together, right? Yeah, I mean for for the entire community, right? Um, and they also act sometimes as doctors in those mm-hmm. areas, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, it was a trusted title. It translated well across cultures, and I didn't even realize that you know, at the time that there were midwives back home, Oh, you know, and uh, my sister-in-law told me about her birth and she delivers in a hospital and she wants to be induced and she wants an epidural mm-hmm. and she loves her midwife. And the more I looked into it, I thought, this is what I need. This is exactly wow, what cool. I need. So I came back in and uh, went into nursing and got my master's in nursing um, as a nurse midwife. right in. Mm-hmm. And it and it fits so well with everything that I had been passionate about up until then, um, you know, advocating for women, knowing um, what kinds of of issues and struggles that women were specifically having. Yeah. So, how do you specifically practice? What What are the things that? How do you treat your clients? Hmm. It's a very 
broad question. I think, you know, on a daily, you know, and working in the setting that I do, it's a very busy setting. Um, but one of the things I always, I always want my patients to feel is that they're cared for, that, um, that I, I'm somebody that cares about them as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not a diagnosis. They're not, um, you know, uh, a dollar sign. They're not, um, they're people that I, that I care about. I'm deeply in, involved in their lives. And I know, you know, they may come to me with, um, the complaint of, you know, a vaginal infection or depression or anxiety, but, you know, there are other things going on in their life that are contributing uh, to whatever situation that they're coming in uh, to see me for. And even little things like during a birth, um, I've gotten, to, I've gotten to witness you a couple of times at births and you'll do little things like, um, she's having a harder time and you'll, you'll stay by her side a little longer than I've seen other providers just to kind of. Yeah. I like to kind of assess the need, you know, some women like to be left alone yeah. and, and, you know, for it to have me there, like constantly watching over them, even though I really want, you know, I want to be there. I want to do things for you. Um, but for some women, they like, makes them nervous to have I you. I need to be alone right now. Oh. They will all reach a point where they need a little something. Yeah, yeah. So I just kind of stay close. So when I see that, you know, I'm, I'm there to jump in. Um, but one of the things, uh, and I think you mentioned this before, one of the things I really like to do when I first establish that relationship, once somebody's there in labor, once they're, they're there during that, you know, at, at the same time, powerful and vulnerable time mm-hmm. um, in labor is to make sure they realize that I'm there in, in a service role. Um, you know, I, I like to make sure everybody has a beverage. Can I get somebody some water? It's 4am. Can some, you know, what's your caffeine of choice? Do you need coffee? Do you need a <laughs> yeah. Diet Coke? What do you need? Um, does everybody have a pillow and a blanket? Um, so you're midwifing the whole family. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a family process. <laughs> yeah. You know, this isn't, this isn't a mother that's, uh, you know, doing this on her own. There's always multiple people involved, mm-hmm. um, in the birth and the, you know, this new child that's coming into the world. Um, so, you know, while at certain times, you know, things may get crazy and suddenly I have to turn into an authority figure, you know, in the room, uh, at times my, my most basic role is, is one of service. This is, well, it's probably easier to switch into the, the authoritative role if you've built that level of trust, right? Yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, people, the woman has to feel safe in birth yeah. and labor. Um, and, and it's easier to feel safe when you know somebody's there to meet your most basic needs, um, to dim the lights, uh, to make sure you've got your music playing, to make sure your family's comfortable. Cause a lot of these women are, you know, they're mothers, they want to take care of everybody. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if you're there to kind of fulfill that role, you know, a lot of them will bring children too. you know, yeah, I'm yeah. there to make sure the kids have snacks and that we've got a, a movie a working Wi-Fi for connection for the, yeah, right, <laughs> the iPad. Right. <laughs> yeah. We've got the password. Yeah. Um, so it's the, it's the first, um, really basic, uh, kind of mood setter. So, um, I don't know how to phrase this question, but how do you uh, differentiate between what, how you practice and hospital policy? And sometimes if there's, is there ever like a conflict between how you practice and hospital? Cause I guess what I'm getting at is so many women, they connect with their provider and then they mm-hmm. go to the hospital and they find out they can't, they can't do certain things that their provider said they could because it's against hospital policy. So how does, how does your work with the hospital, what is that relationship? You know, I guess I don't really run into that that much. Um, a lot of it is because things have changed so much, you know, hospitals, um, 
I mean, it, this is a service industry. You know, the, the basic economic principles of supply and demand apply. Mm. Women have demanded certain things about their care. Um, women, you know, there was this huge increase in home birth and the hospitals responded by saying, you know, well, okay, if women want, you know, skin to skin, they don't want, you know, immediate infant interventions immediately after birth. Let's look at that and see what we can safely provide. And it turns out a lot of almost everything that women want is something we can safely provide in a hospital setting, Mm -hmm. you know, so... Uh, most of my patients come to me, and usually we've worked this out before birth. I almost never run into a situation where somebody's in labor and I'm like blindsided by this desire that they have that I can't meet in the mm. setting that we're at. Mm-hmm. We encourage them to come every visit with a list of questions. We encourage them to take classes. We encourage them to get doulas. We encourage, you know, so that, um, you know, as they go through this process of learning and preparing for birth, you know, any of these questions that come up during that process can be brought up during their prenatal care. Um, so, so I very, very rarely run into a situation where, um, we haven't already talked about their desires and their plans and put big notes in their chart. So you work in a group practice, but your clients do do get to know you and the other midwives, whoever's Mm -hmm. on call. Yeah, we do. I feel like we work in an unusually large practice too. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's this thing that we constantly worry about as a practice, making sure that our patients feel like they know us and they know how we practice and they feel, they feel safe and, uh, you know, cared for in that environment. are kind of blacklisted on social media and the other half are like, yeah, no, you you guys are all pretty, we really try not to do that. (laughs) Unite. I've seen that a Try lot. Try to be really Go careful with that about practice, but stay away from, stay that away one from this crazy. person. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no. And you know, we, we get, I know I get really attached to my patients, and you're awake all night with them, and you're putting counter pressure on the hips, and yeah. you're um, talking with the family, yeah. and you, you want to be there for the birth, but at a certain point, it's like probably not safe. You know, I've been awake for 24 <laughs> hours, like my partner comes on, and I really should leave. But I always, I, I work with women that I always feel comfortable leaving my patients with that I care about so much that I've become so attached to and knowing that they're going to get the best care wow. possible. Um, you know, these are the women that took care of me through my pregnancy and my birth. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I do work in a necessary, yes, yeah. Sustainable practice that you're not going to have a lot of turnover. Your moms are going to feel safe. You can have a lot of repeat clients. I feel so lucky to work with the women that I do and the doctors that I do, um, where I, I feel so safe. I have no desire to go anywhere. You know, um, I feel respected. I feel safe. I feel like my patients are always in good hands. So you're, you're, you work with a group practice of midwives Mm -hmm. and then you are, how do you say it? Overseen by a doctor? Like um, how do you, do, you, do he we, backs you up or how? there are backup and there we co-manage. Um, co-manage. Yeah. So, you know, our, our patients are midwife patients, um, unless they become high risk in some way. And then we co-manage and every now and again, I get somebody that's like become so high risk. I feel really uncomfortable taking care of them. And I tell them, you know what? I am happy to be there. I will hold your hand. Um, but at this point I really need to introduce you to some of my doctors. Okay. Um, and, and the doctors are in the hospital mm-hmm. and they, they have you, you're back at all times. Yeah. So for my, so. um, VBAC, um, patients or for, you know, any of my patients that become high risk, they develop preeclampsia or hypertension or any number of, of complications that can occur. Um, you know, even if my patients don't see them, I am at a minimum consulting with them 
You know, we're in constant communication with each other while we're on call, you know, telling them when I'm admitting somebody. <laughs> she makes the I'm, texting signs. So you're texting your I'm doctors. Texting. <laughs> yes, we text. We have a HIPAA compliant text system. I always have to explain to people like when you hear, it's a, you know, anyway, when you hear this, I am not social texting. I do not social text. I'm not Instagram. So they're my, story. yeah, right. Um, <laughs> so, so they're our backup, but we also have kind of a, a mutually beneficial relationship with them where we are all surgical first assist. So we help them with all their C-sections. Oh, so, so you actually get to go back in with your yeah, client. Yeah, so it's a way that it, it also improves wow. their life. You know, for sure, because so, they're not being handed off to somebody yeah. they've never met. So, yeah, so so in in that way, my, my clients or patients that, you know, do end up needing operative intervention, I don't hand them off to some doctor they've never met. Um, I'm with them. I go, but I, I assist in the procedure. I can talk to them the entire time. Um, I maintain their care afterwards. I mean, obviously, once they've become a surgical patient, um, my doctors are seeing them and writing their orders. But, yeah. you know, I still go and see them on a, on a social basis. All of us do. Um, so it's really good for that continuity of care. Um, and, you know, for for the doctors that I work with, you know, if we're on call and they have to do an emergency C-section, they don't have to w- wake up one of their par- partners. You know, I come in and I do that with them. So not only... Um, you know, am I benefiting from, you know, them as my backup, um, yeah. in the event of an emergency? Um, but, you know, I can also assist them and, uh, kind of improve the number of hours that they are woken up during the night. Wow. Um, which means that they can care for more healthily and happily more clients, mm-hmm. more high risk clients. Yeah. This sounds absolutely dreamy. I love it. I love <laughs> it. I love that I can provide midwife style care for even women who become high risk. Yeah. There's very, very little uh, that can happen that like totally excludes you from midwife care. You know, I, I, I do still feel like you are in this little like special bubble that not everybody gets to practice like you. Yeah, know? that might be true. I don't know. I, I, think, I think it's I think, true. Is it true? Yeah, I okay. think it's pretty true. Um, I'm very lucky. I'm not going anywhere. Lucky. But so what kind of questions can a client ask when they're interviewing a midwife or an OB to kind of try and draw out if they, if that group, because here's the thing, what I hear you saying is that the mom is the absolute safest she can be because she's got your, she's got you and then your continuity of care. Cause that's a big thing. Mm-hmm. When you notice a, a blip on the radar, you're much likely more likely to notice it because you've seen her so much and your, pra- mm-hmm. your partners all practice similarly. Mm-hmm. So then when you hand her to the doctor, you've got that, you go with her to the OR. It sounds like she's very safe. Yeah, Body and, the, and mind. the doctors and I know each other. We work <laughs> yeah. together very closely. I sit next to them in the office all day, you know. Um, so, so we have we have probing... a very close relationship. They know how I practice. I know how they practice. Yeah. Um, and so what are these probing questions that a mom could ask to see if the practice is going to treat her similarly, like? Yeah. So, you know, I, I feel like it's important for women because I, I feel like especially first time moms who who come into pregnancy and, um, you know, this whole experience have uh, don't know exactly what they want. It's important to to educate yourself, to get lots of good quality information and to really know what it is you want out of the experience. Um, and then to make sure you ask all those questions, you present those ideas to your care provider and, you know, your care provider should at at you know, number one, be willing to sit and listen to those. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that might be kind of rare, you know, sit and yeah. listen to everything it is you want out of your birth um, and out of the experience and bring lists of specifics. Um, you know, sometimes when somebody comes to interview me, you know, uh, it's a very short visit because I think, because they say, well, I brought my birth plan and, um, you know, my, my doctor didn't really like it. And I say, okay, 
well, let's talk about your birth plan, you know, because what I usually see on those is very standard practice for us. Mm-hmm. You know, for a woman who's on who's low risk in spontaneous labor, we automatically use intermittent monitoring. Um, we encourage free, you know, the movement in labor. We have birth balls and we have That's squat bars and we have peanut balls yeah. and we use the tubs and... Um, we have waterproof portable monitors that can go in the tub. And if you need antibiotics in labor, there's no reason we can't do that in, in the tub. Attach your IV to the pole and run your antibiotics in and then detach it. What um, a concept. Yeah, and who, knew? who knew? Right? <laughs> um, there's no reason you can't uh, push a baby out on your hands and knees um, or laying on your side. Um, we immediately, you know, it's our hospital policy is to do skin to skin contact. Even when we invite nursery and respiratory, you know, their goal is to keep a baby on a mother's chest skin to skin, um, you know, as much as possible. Wow. And if they're working on a baby and the baby's still kind of grunty, you'll hear them say, um, you know, let's let's put the baby on mama's chest for a minute bit and see if we transition a little bit better. And if not, we should, you know, we should do something about this. Um, so, you know, I, I, I must be really lucky because I, I work you, in an yeah. environment where I'm so confident in everybody that I work with that uh, when, you know, my my the people I work with say, you know, I, I'm a little bit more concerned about this baby. I think, oh, man, they're concerned. <laughs> I better look closely. <laughs> yeah. You know. But I love I love that because um, to me, this sounds like a great shift in the last 20 years in the culture. Not just, I mean, maybe it's just your little mm-hmm. pocket culture, but it can't just be you. It can't be. And so that gets that gets me excited that this is spreading. This type of care mm-hmm. is spreading. Like you said, it's a Yeah, I, I feel like there's market. there's been, uh, you know, an, uh, uh, continuous uh, women's empowerment movement and we don't we don't live in the medical culture that we used to you know I talked to um, one of one of our nurses over at the hospital who's been around for a long time I think she's like the longest standing employee at the hospital and she remembers a time when you know she wore a skirt as a nurse and she wore a hat and when a doctor came on the unit she was required to stand up and offer him her chair Oh my goodness! And um, you know, <laughs> it's changed. yeah, it has changed. It's not. It's it's an environment where we realize that as medical providers, we we provide a service. We are in the service industry, and that our patients have desires and they have preferences. And um, you know, we have training, and we you know want to use our expertise, obviously, and we use medical evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, but that there's a way to incorporate that into the care that we give. Um, to also uh, improve the way people feel about their care because that's just as important as, you know, their lab results and, um, you know, this your statistical outcomes. Yeah. And it seems like it makes your lives easier in the end too. I mean, if you have this smooth process, then, then you're not as stressed mm-hmm. in your team and mm-hmm. everybody wins. Wow. Okay, so tell me... Um, how you distinguish in your clients between pain and suffering? Mm, yeah, this is a big this is a big one for me, um, especially because we work in a hospital setting and there are, you know, really good anesthesia options available. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I feel like in in our setting, probably about half of my patients really want an unmedicated birth, and they really want somebody who's going to support them through that. And then hey, some of my hey, patients can, really can want I, an epidural. I just want to tangent really fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why do you think so many women want natural? I mean, well, vaginal births. 
Um, you know, so for some of them, man, there's lots of different reasons. Um, for some of them, it's an experience they want. It's a part of motherhood that they want to experience. They want to, you know, get the idea of being able to um, accomplish that is empowering by itself. Um, and for some of them, it's, uh, you know, a like a medical issue. They feel like they don't trust drugs. They don't mm. trust, and you know, the the medications used in anesthesia. Um, they're, they're people who don't get, go get an ibuprofen when they get a headache. You know, they, they're, they're, they're trying to use alternative things, mm-hmm. um, outside of, you know, those, those, um, I don't know, other standard treatments. Right. Um, so it's just, it's kind of not their style. It's not the way they live their life. Um, so, and, and then, you know, good, some, some medical literature, um, that they've read, um, that will suggest that it's. Uh, beneficial in a lot of ways. So when uh, um, a, pl- a patient comes into you, do they usually tell you, I want unmedicated vaginal or I want a medicated vaginal? I mean, like... Mm-hmm. We've usually established that well before very, they're in labor. Very, early. Yeah. And there's notes all over the chart so the nurses know. Because a lot of times these women will show up, you know, eight or nine centimeters and be saying things like... Give me enough. Give me enough. I can't do this anymore. (laughs) You know, I've had women be like, just cut the baby out. And, you know, the (laughs) nurse can look at it and be like, well, Jen's not here yet. Um, She wanted to go natural. (laughs) So So we're going to offer her an alternative at this point. That's very cool. Um, You know, so, and, and our midwives have worked at our facilities for a very long time. So they're, all the nurses are very familiar with how we practice. You know, but there, there is, and even in women who have only had unmedicated births, um, who have done it and done it well and are so familiar with this process, um, you know, sometimes we're, we're in a, in a labor that's different than the rest. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a social situation that's different. Um, you know, a family member has recently died and they're not emotionally prepared or they've suddenly become single. Um, or, you know, they're just not ready. They just don't feel. And then, you know, those, um, sensations associated with birth become overwhelming. Um, and there's, there's a difference. There's a very real difference. And over the years it gets, it gets a little more obvious. Um, I feel like when somebody's in pain, you know, because they're eight or nine centimeters and they're saying the things in a way that everybody at eight or nine centimeters says, everybody says, you know, we have, sometimes we just have to have a good cry before we have a baby. Um, why is that? I don't know. They just got to get it out. Um, huh. it happened the other day. And, and it, just, I, just a minute. I actually, no, what? I remember this in my fourth. What? I remember thinking, I remember telling everybody just a minute, my body's got to cry. And then it was sobbing and in my head. I'm like, well, this is ridiculous. I don't have time for this. <laughs> well, my body was sobbing and then I was like, okay, I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it, it wasn't needs even to be emotional released experience. before you can move on. Yeah. I've even had people like yelling at birth, really vocalizing and afterwards, one, this one woman said to me, man, I was loud. It didn't even really hurt. I just felt like the thing to do at the time. <laughs> Bring it on. I loved it. Um, but oh, how about the people who are like, I'm so sorry. Oh, everybody. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, I didn't, actually, you actually didn't say it was not, Yeah, what was happening in your head was, <laughs> was, pro- was far more intense than what we saw, I think, because you looked amazing. Um, so yeah, no, I hear that all the time, all and the why time. why is it that it, a, a birthing woman always just looks so beautiful? Like, they do. Her hair is always doing the right thing and her skin, like they always look beautiful and they, they feel uh-huh. like, you know, a cow. And we're like, no, no, you're no. like a goddess. You look amazing. You're so amazing. <laughs> oh, so strong. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, to, to get back to the, um, 
the suffering at some point, at some point, sometimes it is suffering. Um, and, um, and that's not what we're shooting for. It's not the, it's not the, uh, the purpose. It doesn't fulfill the purpose of an unmedicated birth. Um, so yeah, sometimes, uh, and usually, you know, I'll offer alternatives. Let's, you know, we haven't gotten in the tub. Let's try getting in the tub for a little bit. And that just will not sound appealing at all. And so a woman will look at me like, you need to help me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then you get to then we just, and, and then we do and yeah. make sure that they feel really good about this decision. So I, I find that my mothers make really good decisions for themselves and their babies. Yeah. And sometimes it's not a decision they initially thought they would make. Um, so I try to make sure that they feel really confident in that. Because they you know, can you change their mind in the middle, right? Uh, of an epidural? Well, well, no. Oh, well, oh of labor. Oh, okay. <laughs> I see what you're saying. But they can uh, they can change their mind <laughs> yeah, and they, yeah. can, they can, oh, I don't want a water birth and then decide they want or they think they want a water birth and then say, nope, never. I don't want to touch a water ever again. Yeah. I, you know, and it's I, always and I, extremes. I try to caution people, you know, beforehand they'll bring in, you know, labor plans. Sometimes they're like, I want to. At 445. Yeah. I, I want to deliver on my hands and knees. And I want to think, well, you know, <laughs> hands and knees and I might not feel great at that moment. Everybody you never know. Yeah. You know. Just be, be ready to roll with whatever feels right um, at the time and feel confident in that. How do you involve the partners in the experience? Oh, well, sometimes, sometimes, I mean, they're, they're there and involved and, you know, you don't have to tell them anything. And sometimes they look a little bit like a deer in a headlight. Yeah, I was going to say. Like, I don't know what to do. She seems really uncomfortable and I don't like when she's uncomfortable. Um, so, you know, just showing them how to give counter pressure. Um, you know, I, especially sometimes I'll have, you know, multiple women in labor, you know, at a time. So I'll go into one room and I'll get a woman situated in, in the tub and I'll give her, her um, partner a, you know, a cup to pour water over her back or, you, you know, do some, this. <laughs> yeah, this is what you need to do. You know, she's in a hot, hot tub. Here's some ice water. She's going to need some ice water. You uh-huh. know, here's a rag for her head. Here's a way to give counter pressure. You know, let her guide you. Um, things like that. Um, and then I'll go in another room and get a woman situated on her hands and knees and, you know, show the family how to give really good counter pressure, you know, on her, on her hips while she's on her hands and knees. Um, and, and you do this for 24 hours straight. Yeah. Well, sometimes I'm usually able to lay I'm down tired, for a little bit. Just, just thinking just, about <laughs> it. Yeah. Okay. So what happens if two babies decide to come at the exact same time? Then it becomes like a Hollywood so movie, that right? Very, yeah. It very <laughs> rarely happens, but then I call in another midwife. Oh, because you can wake them up anytime. Well, you know, we respond at 3 a.m. <laughs> yeah. We tend to. I, I really like driving around town at 3 a.m. It's actually, my favorite time listening to Listening to music at 3 a.m. driving around is actually like, yeah, it's really cool. I really do like my birth driving. Yeah. Just, the, the traffic's clear and you just, you have a, you know, a yeah. direction you're going and that's cool. So you've never been shuffled between... <laughs> I mean, I definitely have, you know, I usually, I, I can usually see it coming when I send out like a text to all my midwives and I'm like, listen, we've got, I need somebody on standby. Um, and then, and then call them in. Do your doctors back you up sometimes? I mean, sometimes we end up doing that just because, uh, crazy stuff happens, you yeah. know, a patient will walk in, you know, pushing in the elevator and I run in and catch a baby and call my doctor and say, uh, I just delivered one of your patients yeah, um, or vice versa. Um, but usually, usually not for situations that don't require their exp- expertise. Got it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is a question I totally didn't prep you for, but I'm just curious um, if you have any experience with preventing tearing or if sure. you have certain opinions about that part of the process. 
Um, I mean, it's, it's like a big part of our training as midwives. Yeah. You know, uh, you don't, you don't return re- routinely cut um, episiotomies, episiotomies no. anymore. Mm-mm. No, nobody the doctors don't either. In fact, um, our, our hospitals actually give us reports of our episiotomy rates. Um, and they, sh- they publicly shame you in the <laughs> they're, break they're room. Like, Listen, you need to stop this. Yeah. So, um, it, you know, midwives, doctors, everybody gets like a report with their, their C-section rate, their episiotomy rate. Cause That's it's one of those so things. Different. It is really different. So this is this is part of the way that I think maybe. So you actually know your C-section rate? Yeah. Well, I keep track of my own as well. Interesting. Um. So so yeah. Um. And and our our midwife practice keeps track of our of our C-section rate. So we usually are somewhere between like four and seven percent. Um, and and if you yeah, and it gives you a good guide for how you're practicing and mm-hmm. so you, like you're, you're you're okay. Sorry. I even I even had one of my doctors should bring me his episiotomy um you know report and was like look at this. I'm doing such a good I'm, job. I'm just like the midwives. Oh. <laughs> so that's awesome. That's the kind of break room banter. We but you know, these are these it. are the kinds of things. You know, the, these are kinds of things that women have raised concerns about. Yeah. Um, and you know, like I said, the supply and demand. So women have raised concerns about them. The hospitals are trying to meet this demand for, um, you know, fewer episiotomies, a lower mm-hmm. C-section rate. You know, partly because that's what women want, and partly because you know, too many C-sections is is a like a health problem. Um, and uh, you know, rooming in and we don't do any of those newborn procedures um, on in the birth room anymore. You know, it used to be we gave erythromycin eye ointment and vitamin K shots really? and all those things. And we, we, we do not, those do not, we call it the golden hour, the first, you know, while that woman oh is in that goodness, birth room. That has changed drastically. Yeah, we don't do that anymore. You'll um, do them later? Yeah, yeah, we'll do them later. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, get, if it's always a question that's asked. A lot of my patients opt out of a lot of things. Yeah. Um, which which even, we are also used to. Do you even have a nursery at the hospital where you work? We do. Mm-hmm. Still have a nursery. Yeah. I've heard some hospitals are getting rid of their nurseries. Well, there's still there's still a purpose. You know, those those women that have like that particularly like exhausting, you know, experiences are sometimes like, I've got to sleep. But it's not a routine for the baby system. No, it's not nursery. routine. It is routine to, to room in. Um, you'd, you'd have to specifically ask. Um, take my baby yeah I need to, I need a nap um or you know unless the baby had problems obviously we've yeah. got you know NICUs and right and all of that but not just return I mean even just having my first children it was routine for them to go to the nursery for like six mm-hmm. to eight hours after they were born mm-hmm. especially since we were so large so there was yeah. this whole thing about low blood sugar sugar which I never understood yeah yeah they do they, they worry about that with yeah. large babies and small babies making sure that their blood sugars are Okay, but there's still, you know, yeah. encourage breastfeeding yeah. and we use, um, you know, human milk uh, in, in the hospital yeah, now. Yeah, you can have prescribed, you can mm-hmm. have donor milk prescribed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So cool. Okay, so sorry, back to the tearing thing. Cause oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what have you found that prevents or uh, makes your chances of tearing greater? Perineal massage um, is something that we that we use you know, pretty standardly. Um, we use like a lubricating gel and kind of massage the perineum, the, the lower part of the vagina that usually uh, is the part that tears during um, like crowning. Um, and we do a lot of stretching. I'll use like... like while she's... Almost pushing. crowning while mm-hmm. she's pushing. Mm-hmm. What if she doesn't want you to touch? Oh, well, then you don't. Um, a lot of times when uh, a woman's crowning, you know, there's so much pressure, you don't really notice a whole lot uh, of other things. I very, uh, you know, and if a woman says, I don't like that, then, you know, obviously 
But you Obviously found that that massage really helps. But most of my patients request anything that I can do to prevent yeah, please, tearing. So, please, you know, us. a warm crom- compress, mm-hmm. um, a perineal massage um, at crowning um, will try to stop and do you know have a nice slow controlled delivery oh, of the head no i don't i don't tolerate that slow delivery. <laughs> no no nope, no nope. people look at me like you've got to be kidding i right know now. i remember um, my but, husband was like slow down slow you can see in the video slow down slow down and i'm like mm-hmm. <laughs> no way yeah <laughs> but i'm surprised that. at how many women are like i don't know she told me to stop you know okay and but they can stop. Yeah. I don't, <laughs> women are amazing. Women are really amazing. I mean, sometimes the, the urge to bush is I was going to say, that last intense. one had like eject response. And mm-hmm. I asked my midwife afterwards, I was like, um, I felt like trying to stop a sneeze. Like there was no stopping mm-hmm. it. And I didn't feel that with the other baby. But even then I can do a lot with uh, flexion of the head, you know, put some pressure on the top to keep the head flexed. Oh, so the really? smallest diameter uh, is passing through the vaginal canal at a time. You know, if they're a little deflexed or nobody listening can hear me do, was, it, do a deflex. Moving her yeah. head <laughs> away from the microphone. Okay, but de- um, flex is looking yeah. up at you. Well, deflexed is looking. So we want to keep their head flexed down their chin to their chest. Oh, chin to the chest. So the so the, like the smallest torpedo. diameter, yeah, is is coming through. Oh, face first. That's got to be really comfortable. <laughs> yeah. You mean like a face presentation? Yeah, for everybody <laughs> oh, involved. <terrible. laughs> Have you seen that before? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you're like, um, I mean, it's, little it's one. incredibly rare. And those poor babies, they're not great photo ops uh, <laughs> right after birth. Usually, kind of and squishy. you really, you got to prepare a family for that. Oh, no. Like, you know, listen, like, your baby. <laughs> baby's going to be swollen, like maybe a little black and blue. Um, face presentations like are very rare, and and it's good, but they're <laughs> rare. Good. So you want them to come, and the, and the the face, that's how you get the cone head thing. Um, so the cone head thing is mm-hmm. because the baby's in the birth canal for so yeah. long, and they're, they're Yeah, so, little... you know, the cone head is more severe in uh, first-time moms who, you know, labor for a little bit longer and takes a little bit longer to push a baby out, um, or malpositioned babies, babies whose heads are, you know, somewhat side. My, my last baby came out with a cone head above her right ear. Um, <laughs> that little stinker. <laughs> trying to come out like the widest possible diameter. Did you have her hand up by her chin, too? Because that yeah. would have been really convenient. I don't remember that part. I was... <laughs> I hope they got photos of that. Yeah. A little stinker bean. I know. So do you think the the slower descent then is less likely to tear or? Slower descent, sure, um, is less likely to tear. And especially, you know, for some reason I've had a lot of like really long crowning births lately. But the baby, then the babies have tolerated it really well. Like perfect heart tone throughout. And sometimes we can, we can wait, you know, and yeah. sometimes the babies don't tolerate pushing, you know, quite as much. And we think, hmm. We should probably speed this up a little bit. Like, how do you speed heart it tones up? are down? Um, I can usually have a conversation with a mother and just say, and well, just push say, a little harder. Hey, I'm a little worried right now. The baby's heart tones are down. Um, we need to, baby needs oxygen. Um, we kind of need to get delivered, and and usually those moms dig deep. I mean, and yeah. and push baby out really fast. And sometimes they struggle. You know, I had, especially somebody who's you know had a, several babies before. When you have that conversation, it's kind of like done. Yeah, yeah, you know, mom's on board. You know, yeah, but a first timer sure. might struggle a little bit more, especially um, if she's really tired. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. you know, that's a situation that I would call a doctor in. If and you never use force, babies, right? I do not. I, that's that's a an, an operative vaginal delivery is a doctor thing. Um, uh-huh. And you know, I let them know if and things aren't you looking. Do, the no, doctor the doctor does vacuums. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're just like, well, maybe you. And that you know, our doctors are so great. They'll usually come in and you know apply a vacuum and get the baby right to crowning, and then say. All right. Your turn. And you're back in. <gasps> That's um, so amazing. Yeah. I mean, sometimes they're really complicated. And I think you you just go away. Yeah. I'm fine with that. 
but you know, if everything's fine, you know, yeah. they, they, yeah, like I said, I, I work in a very, work in a wonderful place. Yeah. Really supportive. Yeah. I really do. So then, um, if a mom does tear, cause that's one of the biggest, biggest worries mm-hmm. that I hear women talking mm-hmm. about. It's almost like they're all worried. I mean, who cares about the whole <laughs> The thing, they're focused in on this tearing thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to figure out a way to have a conversation that's just not all um, scare. And, yeah, and just you like, know, for, there, for any, women who are um, particularly nervous and bring yeah. it up, uh, you know, antenatally during their visits, you know, I'll talk to them about perineal massage before birth. And do you think that um, helps too? I'm sure it does in some ways. I mean, there's not there's not really any way to mm-hmm. to do like evidence based research on that. Like, what would have happened if they didn't do perineal massage? Yeah. You know, so there's I don't I know of no great studies yeah, that prove it's really that it's hard. effective. But I and certainly don't think. And you can tear with a small baby and then be fine with the next big baby. Yeah. Like it, yeah. even birth to birth, it's just not the, even a woman. One of the the biggest baby I've ever delivered vaginally was just over 11 pounds, and I, if I remember correctly, she, she did didn't not tear. tear. Yeah. That's, that's super exciting. And I've seen tiny, tiny women, you know, just the women that people don't think should deliver vaginally, like push babies out with lacerations. And women, you'd think, you know, it's going to be fine. and You know, there's a little bit of a tear. But, um, yeah. So then do you do the stitching part? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unless, unless it's severe, third or fourth degree lacerations. If we if we tear through the rectal tissue, I really I, I like to bring in a surgeon and the, for that. The fourth degree, that's when through the rectum. That means that the vagina and the rectum are the same thing. Yeah, at that point. Is that what that means? Yeah, we like to fix that real good. <laughs> I know. I'm not like I just want to like you know mathematically. I'm just, uh-huh. I just want to know exactly like what that means. It's just yeah, yep. that's a that's when I call situation. one of my wonderful doctors and ask them to put put her back together. Uh, those are pretty rare. Those are very yeah. rare. Um, and sometimes you can tear up or to the mm-hmm. side. Yeah, labial tears or yeah. um, up towards the clitoris. Usually if I, it's one of the few non-emergent reasons that I will talk to a woman about a pe- an episiotomy when all the labia and, you know, the, the up towards the clitoris seems to be stretching so tightly that I think, ooh. Because you'd much rather you have might, it a- You'd rather, I feel like you'd rather tear down and I'll talk to them and say, I'm really worried about the extent of these lacerations. I'd like to cut just a small episiotomy just to give it a direction. Um, so that's, that's really one of the only, and that, that happens very, very rarely too. Um, but, uh, one of the only situations that I would offer like a non-emergent episiotomy. So, um, when I met, cause I specialize mostly in home births, that's most mm-hmm. of my experience. I've been yeah. in the hospital obviously with you a few times, but most of the time, um, I find that when I'm at home, I can, I can kind of hear with the mom where she is almost, yeah, like, yeah. almost knowing what her dilation is, mm-hmm. uh, without, without the midwife checking her just by the noises mm-hmm. she's making and what she's saying and how she's moving. But in the hospital, um, you don't always get that because of epidurals right so oh yeah how, how does an epidural change the course of like a natural like kind of outline outline the difference between a non-medicated birth in terms of like intensity cues. and experience and cues mm-hmm. versus um an epidural um well you know certainly when when somebody has an epidural in order to assure that we're progressing or that we're complete you know it it does require uh, a couple more vaginal exams um but you know it depends it depends on the situation you know if i have somebody that gets an epidural really early in labor it might slow it down a little bit and we might need some pitocin augmentation or to break mm-hmm. water um whereas somebody who comes in and is in rip roar and active labor um sometimes they get that epidural and their all their pelvic muscles 
muscles relax and like suddenly they're complete. Um, so you can go from like a four to a 10. Yeah. Oh, like, you know, oh we're going to talk about that next oh, yeah? dilation. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> but you they know, can just dilate really quickly. Once yeah. And, and it's difficult to know without, without checking a cervix. Sometimes there'll be indications in the baby's heart rate that, you know, we're, we're going, um, we're moving kind of fast. Um, whereas somebody who's unmedicated definitely shows signs and, you know, I'll sit with women and think, man, we're not really vocalizing yet. Like I'm not hearing any moans. Well, but have like, you ever I been with a woman where you thought maybe she was still at a two or a three and she's at a 10? I mean, do you get confused oh, sometimes? Oh, you know, I have. Yeah, sometimes, <laughs> you know. And I'll or have, they I'll sound like women, they're going to be at a 10. Yeah, and they sound like two. they're ready to push your baby out and they're like one centimeter. Yeah. And you're like, oh, oh honey. <laughs> been through all of that. Um, but usually in, you know, the normal progression of labor, there are certain signs, you know, the beginning is, um, you know, kind of longer. And then once you get to five or six centimeters, things kind of pick up and there's some vocalization and, you know, you get to eight or nine centimeters and a woman might question her ability to follow through with this. And then to, I think, to be oh, Earth. fantastic. <laughs> that means we're, we're almost done. And do you find, so do you find that there's, um, a lull. I know with my first, when there was a lull at probably like nine centimeters, that's transition that everybody's like, whoa, we got to start the pit. Everybody's, you know, slowing mm. down. You don't, you kind of, how long can that lull last before you're like, hmm, what's going on? I mean, if somebody, it, it would depend on like their level of distress too. Oh, okay. You know, where I'm like, this woman needs to be done. This is, well, no, but like sometimes but, you'll get to but the wall and there will yeah, be, a, be, a, be a contraction for like 20 minutes. Oh. And everyone's like, maybe this was all a joke. Maybe you're not actually pregnant. Maybe. No, I've never known anybody to stay pregnant forever <laughs> yeah, at that point. Sometimes um, it's like, what's going on here? It'll, it'll always pick up. And if it's taking longer than she wants, we can do something about it. But, yeah. And then, so the epidural is, um, I like to think of it as just a, a really good tool. Mm-hmm. To, sure. Uh, yeah, for mental health. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's it's what a woman wants out of the experience. She mm -hmm. wants to be able to sit around and visit with her family and push a baby out and enjoy the baby and not Are be super tired. Are there different kinds of epidurals that make it so you can feel like can a woman feel that she's complete? Um, a lot of times, you know, we don't, we don't, uh, at least in our facilities, we don't do epidurals the way I feel like we used to, where um, we try to eliminate all sensation and like a woman can't move her legs or, mm. um, you know, it's, it's not useful in not the, the end when you're trying to push 80s. a baby out, okay. you know, yeah. The, and you have Floppy no legs. idea if you're pushing right or if you're pushing, you know, in a way that's uh, helping you progress at all. Um, you know, even when anesthesia comes in and talks to our patients, they'll say, listen, I want to make you comfortable. I you should be able to take a nap, um, but you're going to feel pressure. And as you get ready to, to deliver, it, it's going to be a lot of pressure and that's good because it's going to help you push. Um, and our ideal epidurals, they can move their legs. Um, you know, it's not always perfect. Yeah. Um, but they can feel that pressure. It's just not yeah, any yeah. pain, not any. We, you know, we get, we get excited about the strangest things at the hospital. You know, a woman, a woman tells me that she needs to have a bowel movement and I think, oh, that's great. Congratulations. It's not a bowel movement. It's a it's head. A baby. And especially if she has an epidural with that, right? Yeah, yeah. Because then you're like, oh, yeah. oh. Get on the backward scrubs and <laughs> the, the cake. I always yep. love it when the, you guys don your whole like. Our, our get up. Your, your, yeah, your suit. Gown your and gloves. Suit. And it goes on backwards and the gloves. Yep. Yeah, I know. Because, uh, you know, again, at home birth, you just, you know, right. lay down a few check pads and you're all ready. And, and everything's fine. <laughs> and, the, and then the bed goes, it's the whole transformer thing. Ka-chunk, chunk, chunk. It's magic. I love that though. I love that I can turn my beds into chairs. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I loved my hospital bed with the second one because they mm-hmm. just kept moving it to help co- accommodate my position and mm-hmm. then, you know, just supportive. So, um, okay. So talk about this elusive dilation thing. First of all, why I remember when I was giving birth the first time, they wanted me to do one centimeter per hour. And if I wasn't, oh, yeah. they were really bugged. The curve. The curve. Yeah. Friedman curve. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like we've kind of moved on from that and, um, um, the literature. Yes. But our moms and our mother-in-laws and our aunties, they haven't. Yeah, they do. They want that one centimeter an Mm -hmm. hour or like. And if they're in the birthing room with you, they get really nervous. I'll hear things from women like, you know, oh, I hear you're not supposed to break water until, you know, you're at least three centimeters or I hear you're not supposed to. And I think, well, nothing's quite that rigid. Yeah. (laughs) We're inducing for hypertension. We have to do something. Yeah. Um. You know. Uh. So. So yeah. The the curve. I man. I haven't even heard that for a while. Um. But it was definitely something we talked about in school. Um. Making sure that we don't we don't fall off the curve. Um. But yeah. All of our professional organizations. You know. ACOG and. Um, they fall. Yeah. They're recommending that we we wait a lot longer and be a lot more patient. It used to be. You know, we only push for three hours and if you're not low enough for, you know, for an operative vaginal delivery. And now they're saying, like, you can push longer than that. And, you know, if you've stalled for two to three hours, and then that's an arrest of labor. As, what or, do you define as pushing? Um, What's the pushing phase? Completely dilated and actively and like, <clears throat> bearing down. down. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so I mean, the recommendation is to be a lot more patient. Um and what happens if a woman wants to bear down before she's complete? Do you always check? Um, I mean, if I'm dealing with somebody who's on like baby number five or six, I, mean, if they're, <laughs> I know what I'm doing. <laughs> if they're nine centimeters, like they won't be for long if they're if they're pushing. They're pushing. Um, but it's yeah, I I like to make sure because I'll have some people with urges to push. Um, but it, it this What's doesn't this have to be very. What's this elusive lip? Everybody's the lip. Like, I had a lip. I almost died. <laughs> Everybody almost died, and I'm like, it was a what's a what the heck is a lip? It's anyway? just a tiny little bit of cervix, and sometimes it can prevent the head from coming down. Um, or you know, if you push too soon, that lip can start to swell and become more. But wouldn't the baby just push it out of the way? I mean, I've seen midwives get up in there and move the lip during uh-huh. a contraction. I'm like, that doesn't look very comfortable. No, it's not. <laughs> It is not. Um, so, um, so I mean, uh, I mean, I've had women with urges to to bear down uh, at like six centimeters, and you know, then you can cause a lot of swelling and yeah, and, uh, and things like the... that. Um, or what is she feeling if she feels the urge to burge, to push down at six centimeters? What what is she just feeling? pressure? I mean, sometimes uh, sometimes that head's really low, and it's, it's like, you know stimulating that reflex, but the cervix isn't all the way out of the way. Uh, I got it. So I mean. It's it's usually not a problem. I mean, usually women have an urge to push like right as that cervix is disappearing. Um, but I mean, I've I've had situations where you know I've I, I have I've done that a couple of times actually. Have you been that mean midwife? I know, but I usually prepare them. You know, where I've it, it was it was one of our office staffs. You know, anyway, it's a family member, and um, she was unmedicated, and I put the baby on the monitor, and heart tones were very very low. Ooh. And uh, they were not coming back up. And she was like eight centimeters. And I thought, we need to deliver. Like, this baby is not doing well. You're going to, 
you're going to really want to kick me in the head for like 10 seconds, but I feel like this is what needs to happen. And I, you know, pushed it back and we delivered and the baby did But you can't really manually, manually dilate a cervix, right? No, no, I mean, not, I mean, like early. (laughs) We're making hand symbols here. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I've heard like people can like. Looking at you. Yeah, two fingers. That they can put and they can spread their fingers and open the the cervix manually. And I hear these stories and I'm like, Like, uh. Early labor? Is this a trained midwife? Yeah. That sounds really terrible. No, you'd never do that. I don't know why you would do that. It's like artificial dilation anyway. It's not like it's. It's not going to help the baby come out faster, right? Yeah. Not in that scenario. I just I hear the craziest things and I'm like, I just I don't know what the what are people thinking? Yeah, that sounds really terrible. Oh. Okay, so what about um monitors, the different types of monitoring mm-hmm. that you what do you like to do and what mm-hmm. are the options for doing? Yeah, sure. So in somebody who's in spontaneous uh, normal labor, um, we like to listen to the baby for like twenty to thirty minutes, make sure we see all the signs of well being. Um, and you know, all the evidence suggests at that point that intermittent monitoring is perfectly reasonable. So then we lift, uh, we listen before, during, and after a contraction or surge, whatever. Once in a while? Uh, every 30 minutes. Every 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then more frequently during the pushing phase, yeah. during the, the second phase of labor. Um, and, uh, you know, we can, like I said, we can do that while you're sitting on a ball, while you're in the tub. Um, sometimes we put the, the monitor on and the baby doesn't look very reassuring or um, you know, like I said, I like to provide midwife style care for even women who are uh, high risk. Um, so sometimes I'm inducing somebody because they have preeclampsia or cholestasis or, mm-hmm. you know, any number of conditions that can that can come up that would uh, What's indicate cholestasis? cholestasis. It's a gallbladder issue, oh, interhepatic yeah. cholestasis. Um, and um, my patients still want as much of that experience as possible. So, but I have to monitor continuously while we're, you know, inducing and on pitocin. Um, but I have portable yeah. units. I, okay, so when the, they're in pitocin, they do have to be monitored. Yeah, I cannot safely administer pitocin without monitoring a baby because pitocin can lead to two too strong a contraction if we're if it's if it's over yeah we have very strict rules about how pitocin can be used and when we can turn it up and by how much and um, the kind of monitoring that needs to be done um, to make sure that we don't induce distress Um, and but i can i have waterproof units and i can monitor women continuously in the tub Um, they can be standing and walk Um, i can monitor on your hands and knees or while sitting on a ball um, and what's the difference between, and the, you're talking about those belly monitors mm-hmm. that they kind of strap on you. Mm-hmm. And so. Yeah, we have a Novi now at one of our hospitals. What it's is a, that? It's a different it's monitor. It's like stick. it's like taped on. Oh, nice. Is it know? wireless? So, yeah, and it's wireless. That's so groovy. Yeah, so, um, you know, it takes a minute to set it up, but... Uh, but then it's there. It's yeah. Uh, what it's about nice. internal monitoring? What's mm-hmm. what's that all about? Yeah. Um, so internal monitoring, um, we don't use quite as often. Um, you know, it requires. You know, there's the fetal scalp electrode um, that attaches, you know, to the first couple layers of skin on the baby's head. And that's so that we can really accurately monitor a baby's heart rate. And that's something that um, I would use in an emergency where, you know, we're, we're thinking about uh, doing an operative delivery. Um, I need to know if I need to run back to the OR. Uh, and I'm not sure I'm getting mother's heart rate. I'm not sure I'm getting a heart rate accurately. Um, so that's something that I would want to apply in that situation. So I make sure that I'm getting a really accurate assessment of how the baby's doing before um, we make any major decisions. Because um, the external monitor can tell you heart rate, but it can't really tell you like 
Can 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 the scalp one t- tell you uh, oxygen content, or can it tell you? No, I mean we look for different signs of oxygenation. There are different just... signs in the heart rate, you know, the variability, uh... and um, but sometimes the heart rate will go down, and we'll pick up mom's heart rate instead of the baby's, um, oh, and it's and it can bad. be difficult to distinguish between the two. Um, so it becomes important, you know, especially if we're thinking about, you know, intervening operatively to make sure that we're accurately assessing the baby's heart rate. And those are situations that get a little scarier. Yeah. Um, or, you know, the, there's difficulty. Yeah. Anytime it's difficult to monitor. Do, are, there two, are there two different types of internal monitors? Yeah. So the other one is the inner uterine pressure That's, catheter. Yeah. And, I was wondering um, about that. It's a, it's a tube um, that goes in through the cervix and sits beside the baby. So when we monitor contractions externally, we can monitor when they're happening, but we can't cannot monitor their strength. And sometimes, depending on the size of the habitus of the patient, they're a little bit more difficult to pick up. Um, oh. So, um, you know, uh, if if I have a patient, if I'm, you know, y- using Pitocin for a patient that uh, that needs that, um, I, I have to be able to monitor the frequency of the contractions. Um, you know, I can't be having more than five and ten minutes. Uh, that's too much. Yep. Um, but if I can't accurately measure the contractions, I can't know if I'm safely using the Pitocin. Um, or, you know, let's say I've had somebody at eight centimeters for seven hours. But you can't do that if the water is not broken, right? No, the water has to be broken for both for of these. both of these, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, that's a good point. Um, so, you know, I have somebody that's stalled out. We don't know why. And before we say, well, this patient's been eight centimeters for seven hours, like we should consider a C-section, you know, I say, you know, let's let's measure these contractions. And I'll insert that and we may find that the contractions, now that we can measure them because it's internally, the contractions are totally inadequate. We just need a little extra help. It's not mm-hmm. that there's a problem with the pelvis or position of the baby or something like that. We're kind of assessing all the different reasons that something could be could be going a little bit wrong. And the whole time you are telling your mom what Absolutely. You're doing, we are talking about it. Um, making choices, informed choices. Um, all of you know, there's there's nothing that we do um, that a mother can't say. I'm really uncomfortable with that. Yeah. Um, and we can talk about that until you know. Even in the very rare scenarios where something is such a severe emergency that I say we need to go and we need to go now. I'm walking back to the OR and I'm saying, do you understand what what's happening now? Do you have any questions? We need to move very quickly. Um, so in those, most of these other situations, we've got plenty of time to sit well, yeah, around so, uh, so going all chat the way to it. the scary part, um, mm-hmm. if you have an emergency, then do they, and they haven't, um, had a, oh, we didn't even talk about this, Heplox, mm-hmm. or they don't have a, a continuous IV, then they have to go under general anesthesia, right? Or, we still need an IV in those, in those situations. You still do, no, yeah. but I mean, it, oh, you always do an IV? Well, we always, I mean, uh, y- we like to have IVs in place. We certainly have people that, that opt out of them. Um, but you don't have to be on a continuous infusion. Got it. Um, and then if they need an emergency, you've got that. Then we have that in place. Hardware already use. hooked up. Mm-hmm. You can just go in. Yeah. I mean, we, using general anesthesia is pretty rare. Is it? Yeah. Just hear these horror stories. Yeah. Yeah. Horror stories. But you're stories saying are... that most of the time you have time to talk about options. Mm-hmm. Most of the time. Mm-hmm. Even if, even if, you know, we're, we're pretty worried. There's a, there's, you, there's there's a couple minutes time. that you, you can sit down and say. Sit down and get an epidural, go in for C-section. Nobody's losing their... Mm-hmm. Or a spinal their, at that point. Yeah, yeah they're yeah. Uh, faster. Wow. Oh, my goodness. I could I could talk to you all day long. <laughs> and thank you for answering all of my burning questions. Because I just... I get so tired of hearing, um, you know, scare, scare mm-hmm. stories. I mean, there's truth to them. 
Like yeah, those things happen. Yeah, but it's, what is what is actually mm-hmm. happening? And and um and the more midwives we have that are like you that that support their women, their their clients. To, well, now it's a patient. <laughs> Home birth, it's a client. <laughs> it's a woman. Yeah, yeah. Your patients, you support their choices and and guide them to be safe. Yeah, and healthy, safe and happy. And happy. Have yeah. a positive experience. No matter what you choose, whether you want an unmedicated birth with as few people touching you and few medical medical interventions as possible, humanly possible, um, or an epidural or a repeat planned C-section, yep. um, it should be an experience that uh, is memorable and loving and positive and yeah. empowering. And there's a way for any woman's desired birth um, to be that way. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks today. for having me. Please visit us at birthcircle.com, join our Facebook groups, or find us on Instagram and Pinterest. We hope you'll use our resources to support your birthing experience. And thank you to LaunchPod Media, who produces these podcasts.